You might be wondering why we have a table set here at the front of the auditorium. It's, it's all ready to go. The only thing that's missing is you and some food. But this is going to be our visual cue throughout this series, a reminder of what it's all about. Because our series and our scripture for this morning begins with a meal. A group of people have gathered around Jesus. They've come to Jesus, and apparently Jesus is eating with them. Now, in Jesus' day, there were some deeply ingrained social rules about who ate with whom. For instance, one of these rules was that like eats with like. You ate with those in the same social class with you. You didn't eat up unless you had something to offer. You didn't eat down unless they had something to give. And this was related to another rule they had, the rule of reciprocity. If you ate with someone from whom you could gain something, you were expected to give something in return. They expected you to return the favor. And a third rule stated that students of the learned should not recline at the same table as people of the soil. What that meant was this, that if you earned your living from your knowledge, you did not eat with those who earned their living with manual labor. So in this instance, religious leaders like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would not eat with common folk like farmers and fishermen. But Jesus comes along and He breaks all the rules. He eats with people He shouldn't be eating with. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. This is going to be our launching pad for this whole series. Luke chapter 15, <coughs> verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Do you notice how lost people had a magnetic attraction? Jesus. They wanted to be with Him. They wanted to be near Him. They wanted to hear what He had to say. But these were people who were so good at sinning, it was their nickname. They were called tax collectors and sinners. Now, tax collectors were seen as traitors. These were people who betrayed their own countrymen by serving their Roman oppressors. They collected exorbitant taxes for Rome, and then they lined their own pockets by stealing a little extra from their fellow countrymen for themselves. And the sinners? Well, the sinners were everybody else who didn't measure up to the religious leader's idea of what a godly Jew should be. And this ran the gamut from everyone who didn't follow all of the rules to, oh, say, prostitutes. And these are the kind of people who wanted to hang out with Jesus. They were drawn to Him. Why? Well, 
Because Jesus loved them. That's why. Over these next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at how Jesus loved lost people. And it's a series that we're calling Loving Like Jesus. And it's a series that that I've been working with 36 other churches over the last couple of months. And we've been doing this because we believe that God is calling us as a church, as a people of God, as a kingdom, to love lost people like Jesus loved lost people. And lost people were drawn to Jesus. They wanted to be with Him because He loved them. And this offended the religious leaders. Now, who were these guys? Well, we read here about the Pharisees and the, and, and the uh, teachers of the law. The Pharisees were a group of Jews who had devoted themselves to a strict observance of the Mosaic Law. They were going to follow it, and they were going to follow it completely. And they were regarded by most people as being the most spiritual, the most holy of everyone. And then there were the teachers of the law. They were experts in the written law. These were the theologians who had gone to seminary. And not only had they studied the written law of Moses, but they had studied all of the interpretations that had been handed down by the rabbis over the centuries. And they taught in schools and they taught in synagogues and they were regarded as the final authority when it came to religious questions. And we read in verse 2 that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now they meant that as an accusation. It was a charge they were leveling against Jesus that He welcomed and ate with sinners did not fit their idea of what a spiritual person should do. But Jesus was breaking all of the rules. It was the rules that allowed the religious people to remain separate from the sinners. And it was that separation that allowed them to feel like they were better. That they were more superior than all the rest. And as we go into this series, maybe we should ask, do we have any rules of our own that allow us to stay separate from people? Any rules that allow us to think that maybe we're better than someone else? The text says they muttered. Muttering doesn't come from a heart of love. Muttering is what you do when you open that Christmas tie from your mother-in-law. Muttering is resentful. Muttering flows from a bitter heart. Muttering is the native language of a sad soul. Well, Jesus overhears their muttering insult and He throws it in their face. And He tells three stories, three parables that explain why He welcomes sinners and why He eats with them. And he talks about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And with these three stories, Jesus casts for us a vision of why we need to love and welcome sinners. And specifically this morning, I want to talk about how we need to love with a hopeful love. With a love that gives hope when you're lost. A love that gives hope no matter where they are lost, no matter how they got lost, no matter how badly they are lost. 
We will draw people to Jesus when we love them with a love that gives hope. Sunrise Christian Church is a church that gives hope. Let's look at the first of these stories, the parable of the lost sheep, verses 3 through 7. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. And the first thing that we see from the parable of the lost sheep is that there is hope even when we simply lose our way. Even when we just get lost without trying, there is hope. Now, I've never spent a lot of time around sheep, except for maybe a petting zoo on occasion. But from what I read, sheep are not very smart. In fact, they're pretty dumb. You see, a sheep is instinctively slaved to a herd mentality. Back in 2005, it's made the news, there was a sheep in Turkey that took a header off of a cliff. And the shepherds watched in horror as the rest of the herd, one after the other. 1,500 sheep committed mass sheep suicide because of this herd Mentality. Sheep don't think very well for themselves. So a shepherd who has a sheep who wanders off on his own has got a problem. And he's got to act quickly. But here's the thing. People can be a lot like sheep. Can't we? We'll follow the herd even if the herd's doing something stupid. I mean, there's a reason why we have the term sheeple. And how else do you explain things like the Tide Pod Challenge? Rioting when you don't know what you're protesting against. Or Bitcoin that inflates to $19,000 in value when it's backed by $0 in real assets. It's a herd mentality. Several years ago, there was a bunch of people who lined up outside of Grumman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood five weeks before uh, the premiere of Star Wars Episode Three, And one by one, they, they lined up one right after the other. They set up their tent and their camp. They came from as far away as Australia. The only problem was they were lining up at the wrong theater. It's the herd mentality. And even those of us who pride ourselves on being independent, we usually just follow a different herd. Have you ever noticed how nonconformists all look alike? True. Whether it's hipsters, goths, rappers, bikers, rednecks, or emos, they're all just different herds doing the same thing. Remember years ago when I was in college, there was this girl, and she really prided herself. She was independent. She was a free thinker. She marched to the beat of her own drum. She didn't want to just do whatever the group was doing. And I went with her to a concert 
where there were 10,000 other girls who all looked and acted just like her. Yeah, you're a free thinker. It's no accident that Jesus compares us to sheep. In this parable, there's a shepherd that loses a sheep, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say there is a sheep that loses its shepherd. And with what we know about sheep, it's pretty safe to assume that this sheep gets lost because of its own foolishness. Maybe he was watching a bumblebee flip from flower to flower and he just kind of followed it on. Or maybe he's sitting there munching and he looks across the way and there's a ledge over there that has a real yummy-looking tuft of grass. And he thinks, hmm, I'll go eat that. And off he goes. He wasn't trying to get lost. He, he didn't have bad intentions, but regardless of why, he ended up being where he wasn't supposed to be. Have you ever gotten lost without meaning to? I think we've all done that. And I think we've all done it spiritually as well. On January 12th, Tara Girton lent her Jeep to her three friends from out of town who wanted to do some sightseeing. And it turned out to be a foggy, rainy morning as her friends drove around. And because of the fog, they didn't know that their GPS gave them bad directions. And they followed the GPS even as it led them down a boat ramp into the lake. The driver had done nothing wrong. He wasn't drunk. Authorities later confirmed that, yes, indeed, their GPS app gave them bad directions. You see, sometimes... Our spiritual GPS, our moral GPS, just gets messed up. And it sends our lives the wrong way. Maybe it's the way you were raised. Maybe it's some of the friends that you have. Maybe it's just a wrong turn that you took years ago and your GPS has been recalculating ever since. But after the sheep gets lost, the shepherd does something shocking that shows us so much about the heart of God for lost people. Now, if you've been in church all your lives, pretend you haven't heard this story a hundred times before. And imagine just how shocking it is that this shepherd leaves 99 sheep in the open field to go find one sheep. Jesus leaves the 99. Why? Because they're not lost. And he has a heart for the law. But most churches today have the mentality, well, the shepherd should simply care for the needs of the 99. But that's not what Jesus teaches here. And when the shepherd in Jesus' parable finds the lost sheep, he hoists that sheep on his shoulders and says, rejoicing. He doesn't punish the sheep. He doesn't lecture the sheep. There's a time and a place for that. In fact, I have read that, that shepherds, if they have a sheep that's always wandering off by itself, they will break one of its legs so that it doesn't wander too far from the flock. So, yeah, there is a time and a place for that, but, but this wasn't it. Now, this was a time for a celebration, for a party, because he had found the sheep that was lost. And I want those of you to know that, that, that have simply lost your way, that there is hope for you in Jesus. And Jesus is ready and willing to take you on His shoulders and take you back home.
there is hope. Even if you have simply lost your way. Let's look at the next parable. Beginning with verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house, seeking diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And what we learn here from the parable of the lost coin is this. There is hope even when we get lost because of our own neglect. There is hope. Now this coin's value wasn't in its worth. It was worth about a day's wages. Its worth was in its sentimental value. You see, this wasn't pocket change that she'd set on her dresser and she happened to knock one off. Archaeologists and historians tell us that this would have been a part of her wedding dowry. And for her wedding day, she would have taken these ten coins and she would have sewn them into her bridal headdress. And that's what she wore on her wedding day. So this would be kind of like a stone falling out of your wedding ring. It might not be the most expensive diamond ever, but it's a very special diamond. It's a very special coin. And unlike the sheep, this coin didn't wander off on its own. Coins don't do that, although sometimes you have to wonder. But it was lost due to some sort of neglect or carelessness or inattentiveness on the woman's part. The text doesn't specify the reason, but, but we know this. The coin didn't lose itself. And if you allow me to read between the lines here, I, I know that when I lose my wedding ring or something sentimental to me, it's because I've not been paying careful attention like I should. And so she loses the coin and desperate to find her coin, she lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She moves all of the furniture. She's looking under the cushions. She even pulls the heat registers from the floor and she's looking down in the, in the ductwork. She wants to find that coin. And when she finds it, she's so happy, she calls her friends and neighbors, Hey, party at my house. Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost coin. How many are lost due to some neglect on our part. There was a church in Germany during World War II who enjoyed their weekly worship. They loved the preaching, as I'm sure you love the preaching. They loved to sing their songs, just like we do. They loved the fellowship. The only thing they didn't like was there was a railroad track that ran right behind the church building. And any time a train went by, it created a bunch of ruckus. But one day, it was more than just the whistle of the train. It was more than just the rattle of the tracks. They heard screams and cries coming from the train. Deeply disturbing. They figured out later that it was the cries of Jews being transported to the concentration camps. They found it very hard 
to focus on the Word of God when trains full of screaming Jews went by. So what they decided is that whenever the train would come by, they would sing hymns and they would sing them really loud. And so week after week, the train whistle blew, but the congregation would sing their songs and they would sing them so loud that they could not hear the screams and cries of those being led to their deaths. Nothing changed. They didn't do anything to address the problem, but they certainly felt better when they ignored the world around them. How often do we ignore the world around us just so we can feel better? We've got to quit doing that. George Barna estimates there are between 180 and 190 million people in the United States who are not born-again Christians. And it's hard to wrap your, your mind around a number that large, so let me give you a picture. Arrowhead Stadium up in Kansas City holds 76,416 people. You could fill 2,486 Arrowhead Stadiums with all the lost people just in the United States. You could combine the populations of Mexico and the Philippines and you would equal the number of lost people just in the U.S. And that's not even talking about the rest of the world. Now imagine there is a huge fire coming. A huge fire coming toward this country and that everyone who wants to get out safely has to come to you. You could save a thousand people a day every day, and it would take you 521 years to save 190 million people. Now, here's the good news. You don't have to save 190 million people. But here's the bad news. There is a fire coming. Second Peter 3.7 Good news. There is still time to help people and to get them to safety. But here's the bad news. Too many Christians are doing absolutely nothing to lead anyone to Jesus. Here's the good news. If, if we stop neglecting lost people and we reach out and we each find one lost person in this coming year to bring to Jesus, that means that next year there are two new people who know Jesus. And then if all four of us do the same thing the next year, then that means the year after that there's... There's eight people who know Jesus. And if all eight people then reach one more person the next year, if we keep that process going for 40 years, we will have 1,099,511,627,776 people who know Jesus. Which is 163 times the current world population. It's time we stop singing louder and start looking for lost coins. Let's look at the last story in Luke 15, the story of the lost son. Verse 11, And he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey to a far country. 
And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And what we see here from the parable of the lost son is this. There is hope even when we willfully rebel. Even when it's totally our fault and we know it, there is hope. Now, as the younger son, he would have received only one-third of the family estate, but that didn't matter. That seemed like a large amount to him. So he takes off, has a good time, lives a wild life. But when it was all gone, he was broke and hungry, and he has to turn to feeding pigs. Now, remember, this is a good Jewish boy we're talking about here. Pigs were unclean. Finally, He comes to his senses and he heads home with a repentant heart. He knew that he'd sinned in rebelling against his father. He was ready to be back home where he belonged, even if it was only as one of his father's servants. And while he was still a long way off, his father sees him, which tells us something. His father had been looking for him. And I imagine that father going out on the front porch every day, scanning the distance, looking for a familiar silhouette coming over the horizon, just hoping, just longing. And he finally sees him, and it says that he was filled with compassion for his son. And the Bible says he ran to his son. He ran. God runs. Here's a question for you. What makes you run? Being late? Don't want to miss the bus in the morning? Fear? Fear will make us run. Trying to lose weight. Stay in shape. You know what makes God run? Lost people. That's why God runs. Because He loves them. And I just picture God scanning the horizon, looking even for one person who's finally turned their heart and their face toward home 
And He runs to them with open arms. And we need to be just like that. Looking for lost people who are ready to come home. We want to always be looking in their direction. And when they finally turn toward home just like God, we want to run like a crazy old fool to meet them. Father was so overjoyed that He throws a party. He calls his servants, his friends, his neighbors. He said, let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He wants to throw a party for you too. Doesn't matter why you're lost. Doesn't matter how you got that way. Doesn't matter how long you've been lost, how badly you were lost. It doesn't matter what wrong turn you took. Maybe you just wandered away, or maybe it was foolishness, or a rebellion on your part, or, or the neglect or abuse of someone else. It doesn't matter. Jesus welcomes you to his table. He will invite you to his table to sit down and eat with him no matter who you are. Because in Jesus' rule book, there are no rules about who He will not eat with. He welcomes you. You have a heavenly Father that scans the horizon every day just hoping to see you. And He's waiting for that moment when you turn your heart toward home and when He sees you, He will run out to welcome you with open arms. And He will treat you, He will welcome you as His own son or daughter. And maybe today is that day. Maybe today is the day that you come home. And if today's that day, we invite you this morning to come. And if today is that day, we welcome you as a fellow son or daughter to sit at the table with us. A table that none of us deserves to be sitting at, but a table which we have all been made worthy to sit at because of His love. Will you come? Will you come? For the rest of us, The question is this. Who will sit at your table? Who will you eat with in order to bring them to Jesus? Who will you welcome? Beginning of the sermon, you were all given a fork. And that fork represents the lost person that you will eat with. And what I want you to do is I want you to write a name on that fork. And at this end of each row is a sharpie. If you look down there, if you sit down on this end, you can write a name on it, pass it down. And I want you to think of somebody you know that doesn't know Jesus. And I don't care who they are. 
but somebody that God has placed in your life and you have the opportunity, the ability to influence them, to love them, to welcome them, to, to eat at the same table with them, whatever your version of eating with them might be. It might be working out with them. It might be quilting with them. It might be going to school with them. It might be sitting down at the lunch table with them. It might be taking a break at work with them. But this is a name that I want you to think about. I want you to pray about. And I want you to do something about over these next eight weeks as we go through this series. Write your name on that fork. Or not your name, but but their name. And if this is, you know, I, I don't want to cause any problems. Maybe it's just the first name. Maybe it's just initials. But, but, but something that's going to tell you, remind you, pray for this person. Find time to be with this person. Build a relationship with this person. Love on this person. Welcome this person just like Jesus would welcome this person. And, and you can do whatever you need to with that fork so that it will remind you. I'll give you a couple of ideas. One is you could tie a little string around it and hang it from your rearview mirror. And you'll see it whenever you get into that car. And that'll be a reminder, oh, pray for. Or here's another good idea. Since we're using this whole image of of Jesus eating with sinners, maybe you set that fork at your spot at the table. And it reminds you every time you sit down for a meal, every time you eat, I need to pray for this person. But write that on that fork. Put that fork somewhere so that for the next eight weeks, you'll be reminded to love them like Jesus loves them. And let's set our heart to this. Let's make this our prayer. Let's make this our vision. And maybe as we finish this journey of loving like Jesus, we might see some of those people here. We might see some of those people turning their faces toward home. We might welcome some of them home as they come to Jesus.